Welcome back to Box Madness. Uh, it is still May 19th, just in case you were uh, coming expecting a different energy, uh, maybe a different a different tune, maybe maybe you were expecting a, a different a different hockey energy. It's not coming today. We're no. still riding high, 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 high on that game five. So if thumb if bad things have happened in the preceding week, or if we have started the Stanley Cup by now, uh, pray for us. Pray yes. for our sanity. Yes, um, and if anybody's wondering about that weird white noise, uh, crazy, crazy development. Nathan does in fact wear clothes. Damn it! I know. And it, right, unfo- the usually, secret is out. Weirdly, we usually record these very late uh, into the evening. We usually start them late and record late. And at that point, my uh, my wife is not uh, uh, pr- proceeding to do laundry. Um, uh, right now, that is happening, which means there are occasionally, possibly going to be uh, some white noise things. I will try my best to minimize them, and if they start coming, I'll yell really loud to hopefully drown them out, um, <laughs> as is my want. But that being said, it's funny that I got really loud right when it started. <laughs> nice. But uh, we are moving on to chapter three chapter of three. of imperialism, and this is uh, uh, a thing that a trend I think you will notice going forward. Uh, we're we're going to go a little back and forth with who takes the main lead in each chapter to uh, mm-hmm. to keep each other fresh and to give each person the opportunity to sit back and be snarky without having to think too hard. So in this round, it is David's turn to be snarky without having to think too hard while That's Nathan right. has to do the reading. Keeping me fresh like lettuce with a crunch. Yeah, see, there we go. I wouldn't come up with that. Finance capital and financial oligarchy. An increasing proportion of industrial capital does not belong to industrialists who employ it. They obtain the use of it only through the medium of the banks, which, in relation to them, represent the owners of the capital. On the other hand, the bank is forced to put an increasing share of its funds into industry. Thus, to an increasing degree, the banker is being transformed into an industrial capitalist. This bank capital, i.e. capital in money form, which is thus really transformed into industrial capital, I call finance capital. So finance capital is capital controlled by banks and employed by the industrialist. This definition is incomplete insofar as it is silent on one extremely important fact. That whole preceding thing was a quotation. Um, uh, It was from Hilferding, I believe. Um, That was not Lenin, even though it very well could be Lenin. And this is another great example of Lenin using a bourgeois economist that theoretically is right in the capitalist school, making his argument for him and making it in almost Marxist terms. Um, But this definition is incomplete insofar as it is silent on one extremely important fact. The increase of concentration of production and of capital to such an extent that that it leads and has led to monopoly. That's the word that they really, really, every one of the bougie economists kind of tends to dance around. They'll call them cartels. They'll call them combines. They'll call them syndicates even to a second. But they won't call them monopolies. Mm -hmm. They won't say that because that's the no-no word. That's the thing that's not supposed to happen. corporations, influential, market. Too big to fail. Uh Uh-huh. How? monopoly. How when that happened? I mean, it had to have. I, I guess I just wasn't as... I, I mean, I definitely wasn't a Marxist at the time, so I definitely couldn't have been thinking of it in those terms. But how, when we started saying too big to fail... <laughs> did we not just, did we not just go, well, then isn't that what antitrust is for? Come on! <laughs> resurrect the go- resurrect the rotting corpse of Teddy Roosevelt and, and let's break up some trusts! Like, <laughs> but they're, they were screaming emergency situations. They went too big to fail, and everyone went, wait... How how did they get too big? The too big is a problem, and they well we'll deal with that later. We got to fix the economy. Right yeah, now. yeah, yeah. They're too big to fail. All right. Well, how do we fix that? Let them absorb all the banks that just failed, so that they get bigger. Hold on a second. 
<laughs> Wait a minute, Al. Come, come, come. How did we not? Ah, god damn it. It just it makes no goddamn sense. Um. Oh, man. There's so much white noise on this episode, guys. It's, it's just deal with It's part of our aesthetic. You deal with it or you don't. But throughout the whole of his work, and particularly in the two chapters which precede the one from which this definition is taken, Hilferding stresses the part played by capitalist monopolies. The concentration of production, the monopoly arising therefrom, the merging or coalescence of banking with industry. This is the history of finance capital and what gives the term finance capital its content. We now have to describe how, under commodity production and private property, the domination of capitalist monopolies inevitably becomes the domination of a financial oligarchy. It should be noted that the representatives of German bourgeois science, and not only of German science, like Reeser and Schultz Gavernitz, Leafman and others. I just got dunked on really, really hard by good pronunciation. Uh, are all apologists for imperialism and for finance capital. And Nathan's it, an apologist for German language. Apparent, I, I mean, my name is absolutely German. It would be upsetting if I wasn't. Uh, I think it, 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 my name actually means fist in German, and that's uncomfortable for me. Uh, instead of revealing the mechanics of the no, format. That's, that's the revolution symbol. That's uh-huh, we'll call it that. Yeah, that's yeah, what it is. Because yeah. the Germans were notorious for their revolutions in mid-century, right, in, in the Middle Ages, right? Yeah, 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 that. You can now reverse engineer my name and dox me if you want to. Have fun. Instead of revealing the mechanics of the formation of an oligarchy, its methods, its revenues, innocent and sinful, its connections with parliament, etc., they conceal, obscure, and embellish them. They evade these vexed questions by a few vague and pompous phrases, appeals to the sense of responsibility of bank directors, praising the sense of duty of Prussian officials by giving serious study to petty details, to ridiculous bills for the supervision and regulation of monopolies, by playing with theories like, for example, the following scientific definition arrived at by Professor Leifman. Before we get to Professor Leifman, I just want to remind everyone that Lenin's adjectives are the best. Oh, my God. They're so good. That was a 40-word sentence. Yeah. And 35 of them were snarky adjectives, I feel they like. They really were. And, and, and they're good. They're all good They're all good. And, and since we did stop before Leitman, I, I do want to go back to that because that's really – that whole sentence is so, again, pulling this forward. Is this why are we reading 100-year-old books? vex questions. <laughs> why are we reading 100-year-old books? We should be it. worried about what's going on right now. Uh, guys, po- vague – Vague and pompous phrases, appeals to responsibility, praising sense of duty, giving study to ridiculous bills for supervision and regulation of monopolies. Hello, welcome to the Democratic Party in 2019. Yeah. That's all they are. The entire... There are different flavors of it. They're they're ones that want to like regulate the monopolies, you know, a little more a little more heavily, and 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 they wave their hands in the air a lot, and and love to abuse the word socialist. My accents are bad. My pronunciations. Yeah, yes. Yeah, let's 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 stay away from those. Uh, there's also ones that are a little lighter and, and softer to the to the monopolies, and we've just got to be smart and be responsible with our, our finances and 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 about global warming, and you know, I mean, it's but it's all that. It's all just this pile of bullshit. And then there is, so there's, the, that's, so we talked to the left wing of the Democratic Party, which is our, our Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. That was the first group. Then you have that middle group, which is everybody else and Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris and all them. And then you left out the other wing, which is Hillary Clinton standing by herself on an island going, guys, the banks are awesome. We should all be friends with them. Come on. I don't know why you separated Joe Biden from Hillary Clinton there. I don't know. I, I you're a good point, but still <laughs> it felt, it felt nest. I wanted to put her on an island for some reason. Reason and it felt better. It's 
Her just waving a Wall Street flag, just da 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 da. This everyone from the Obama White House is stuck in that island. Oh, and that's yeah, it. yeah, yeah. And it's it's just that island has one TV, and it's just West Wing yes. on repeat, and they're just so happy. They're and the so... island is called Too Big to Fail Tokyo. <laughs> God damn it! The island is called Practical Ideal Land. <laughs> Practical it's Ideal. called Practical Ideal Land, and that's the name of it. Now here, no other no other revisions. Thank you very much. The flag is the West Wing symbol. It absolutely is. Oh, my God. It's and so... Aaron Sorkin in the bottom corner with a thumbs up. <laughs> Aaron Sorkin just standing by himself on the corner going, everyone should be responsible adults. Pull your pants up. <laughs> Goddamn asshole. We need to. All right. Sorry. We have. This is the divergence. And it, it comes from the West Wing thing, which, again, I think we've plugged a couple times on the show. And I still have yet to not enjoy an episode of that show. It just it is always fun. And it is always a good. Uh, it's, it's a nice non- theory release on how bad fucking politics is without the bad politics. It's like Chapo with, without all the problematic opinions and bullshit that you have to deal with with that. But, uh, but they were talking, they were, they brought up an Aaron Sorkin quote that he brought uh, and it was something to the effect of his dad, when his dad was talking about his war stories from world war two, they would say that they would go, the soldiers would go into a village and, and, and they would say, Oh, Oh, thank God. The Americans are coming. (laughs) Thank God. And no, 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 not, no, 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 no. That's not the funny part. That's that not is, that's, that's funny not part. the funny part. Okay, okay, okay. The funny part is he said we've lost that now with the Trump administration. Oh my god. Aaron Sorkin contends that until Donald Trump, we have been still the great liberators of the world, just completely ignoring the last 75 to 100 years of fucking history. Even if you concede him the point that we were great liberators during World War II, concede that point to him. He pretends that everything was great until Trump. What the actual fuck is wrong with... What sort of pudding-brained nonsense is this man on? I want to say Aaron Sorkin should have to go to Asia. Should have to, like, be forced. Aaron Sorkin should be forced dropped into Vietnam, like, Bear grill style. Vietnam, Korea, something like that. But the problem is, is when he goes there, that's not fair to the people there to have to deal with Aaron Sorkin. It is an oppressive thing to him, yes. And we have to take volunteers. And his pudding brain would probably find a way to be proud of it. Oh, very much so. Very much so. Another another fun thing about Aaron Sorkin that they brought up on that show um, was during the writer's strike. And Aaron Sorkin's response to the writer's strike. Again, if you want to know where this man... Again, this man who supposedly is the bastion of liberal ideals and, and, and good liberal television and politics and all of that kind of bullshit. Um, his stance when the writers went on strike was... If you don't think you're getting paid well enough, look at... He was at a round table of, like, him and, like, four other giant writers. He's like, well, we're not complaining. You, you know, just just write better and you won't have... The, he literally said, write better and be better and you won't have to worry about this. That was his answer. God damn. Like, they're on the fucking picket line and that was a solid... Like, call Hollywood out for all whatever they will. That writer's strike was pure solidarity. They all stuck to that line. There were people that lost their jobs. And Aaron Sorkin literally called it careerist. He said that all the people who were striking were just striking to get notoriety because no one knew who they were before the strike. And they were doing it so that they could get a career out of striking. God. That was his stance on it. He's so if you want to fucking shit. know where Aaron... If you want to fucking think Aaron Sorkin is some fucking friend of the liberals... 
fuck off. No, he's not. He has his fucking shit is awful. Ugh. Okay, so anyway. Professor Leafman. Professor Leafman. His his fun definition. Commerce is a gainful occupation carried on by collecting goods, storing it, and making it available. These were the professor's <laughs> italics. All of that was italicized. That sounds like a fifth grade definition. It's, I'm sorry. it's so fucking bad. It is literally the... In Webster's Dictionary, commerce is defined as that every fucking poor book report starts as. Um, From this, it would follow that primitive man who knew nothing about exchange was a traitor and that commerce will still exist under socialism. It's, it's, I, I just, it's the pudding brain is a, is a genetic disease. But the monstrous facts concerning the monstrous rule of the financial oligarchy are so striking that in all capitalist countries, in America, France, and Germany, a whole literature has sprung up written from the bourgeois point of view, but which nevertheless gives a fairly accurate picture and criticism, petty bourgeois naturally, of this oligarchy. The holding system, quote-unquote, to which we briefly referred above, should have been placed at the cornerstone. The German economist Heyman, probably the first to call attention to this matter, describes it in this way. The executive director controls the parent company. The latter reigns over the subsidiary companies, which similarly control other subsidiaries. This is exactly what we were talking about last time with the family tree of ownership. Mm-hmm. Of You go to the... It's the, the, the 30 Rock example of when... Alec Baldwin's bullshit pulls down the map and says, GE is owned by the Scheinhardt Wig Company who owns everything else under the sun and we're going to spin this off to another one of our subsidiaries so that it doesn't get attached to us. Everything is is trackable back to a big base. Um, Thus it is possible with a comparatively small capital to dominate immense spheres of production. As a matter of fact, if holding 50% of the capital is always sufficient to control a company, which it is, the the executive director needs only one million to control eight millions in the second subsidiary. And if interlocking is extended, it is possible with that one million to control 16, 32, or even more millions. Experience shows it is sufficient to own 40% of shares of a company to direct its affairs, since a certain number of small shareholders find it impossible in practice to attend general meetings, etc. Yeah, I I don't know if there's really, like, the same kind of general meetings today. There are. Um... But I yeah. get notices all the... If you notice, when we worked at AT&T, we got them all the time. We get notices in our email saying, there's a shareholders meeting and you hold oh. stock because you're 401k. Attend! Oh, yeah. uh, and if he's saying that there's a small number of shareholders who wouldn't attend general meetings, then f- fuck me running because I didn't know anybody that even knew we got that email, let alone attended. No, and I guarantee you what they're doing is they're filling up 10, 15% of the shares with the people with 401ks who have, like, no other stock. If you work for a company, especially a large company, and you have a 401k through that company, please, for the love of all that is holy... Look at your 401k and see how it is allocated. Um, a really, really interesting thing that happened, and and not intentionally, I'm, I'm sure, but um, when we were with AT&T right before the end, right before the uh, the layoffs that, that, that sent me on my merry fucking way... Um, they, they partnered with this outside firm, essentially, to give you, 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 you know, impartial advice on your 401k, um, which, if you told me that now, I'd have looked at it with a very mm, eye, but at the time, I was like, oh, okay, it's $3 a month, I'll give them that, and they'll tell me what to do with my 401k. And I got on the phone, they, they did it via phone, I got on the phone with the guy, 
and and we, we we did the basic you know when do you want to retire uh is that a thing i didn't think that was going to be possible in this in this year generation oh well whatever and then he said the first thing he said is so have you ever rebalanced your 401k i'm like <laughs> rebalance dude i'm fucking trying to survive and not get my ass ripped out for not selling enough you know lg g7s at this point i don't right. fuck, rebalance my 401k what the fuck are you talking about it's like yeah cuz uh your 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 general balance that you have here is like 80% AT&T stock. And I said, I just picked the default option. He said, oh, so here's what I'm going to tell you. Uh, any actual financial advisor would tell you to never have more than like 20% of anything in any one stock. Holy 80% in your, in your company's stock is insane. He said, that is the most, he said, that can only benefit the company. That is not in your interest because that means you're just living and dying by that company. If you're that big of a believer, okay, we can keep it that way. He said, but any rational person would advise you not to allocate in that way. And if you go and look and you're a person who works at a big company, I would bet you money that your 401k is allocated in a similar manner. And you absolutely should change that because David's right. That's exactly how they do this. They pump it up with stockholders who have absolutely no idea that they're even stockholders, let alone what that means and let alone have any voting rights or, or ability to interact. So so that's my little PSA for, for <laughs> practical harm reduction. Uh, figure that shit out. Um, experience shows it's sufficient to own 40% of the shares of a company in order to direct its affairs since a certain small number of shareholders find it impossible to attend general meetings. The democratization of the ownership of shares from which the bourgeois sophists and opportunists would-be social democrats expect or declare that they expect the democratization of capital, the strengthening of the role of small-scale production, etc., is in fact one of the ways of increasing power of the financial oligarchy. That is a very long sentence where he used a lot of his wannabe adjectives and that it got a little more confusing than it should have been. That sentence, as I read it, is the people that will, the Democrats, the social Democrats, the liberals will tell you, no, more democracy, if you spread out the shares and let all the people vote and give all the people access to these shares, then the people are going to be able to dictate where the capital goes. They'll vote with their wallets and they'll invest, they'll, they'll make sure that companies run the right way and won't let it, no. Bullshit. That's a lie. It's it's hiding the fact that that you're making it much easier for lar- for companies to subsume other companies and for for stock to become a meaningless thing in terms of controlling ownership rights. Yeah. Well. Well. Kind of admitting that shareholders guide the economy. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Which means that you have a big shareholder. They guide the economy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't. There's so many coded ways that the bourgeoisie tells us. That Marx was right, and they're they're steering the shit out of the ship yep. that we just don't know how to decode. Yep. For this reason, among others, in the more advanced or in the older and more experienced capitalist countries, the law allows the issue of shares of very small denominations. In Germany, it is illegal to issue shares of less value than 1,000 marks, and the magnates of German finance look with an envious eye at England, where it is legal to issue one-pound shares. Again, this is referring to the concept that in... In theory, if you're only able to invest at a thousand marks, then the only people that are investing are people that would have an interest in actually guiding that company and do give a shit about how it's run and would have want to have input. Whereas if you're in, let's say, the penny stock business, give a 
fuck. You're it's a dollar, it's a penny, it's a whatever. You're not gonna, you're probably spread out over every. You don't have interest in those companies. You just uh, went up, I went up, it went down, I went down, whatever. You're not you're not actually engaged in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Siemens, one of the biggest industrialists and financial kings in Germany, another one of these fun brands that is it's absolutely still, still there. Yeah, Siemens. <laughs> if, it doesn't fucking matter. They still exist because they've adapted and they just keep a existing. Huge company. They're a monstrous company. They're a monstrous company. Uh, they told the Reichstag on June seventh, nineteen hundred, that the one pound share is the basis of British imperialism. This merchant has a much deeper and more Marxian understanding of imperialism than a certain disreputable writer generally held to be one of the founders of Russian Marxism who believes that imperialism is a bad habit of a certain nation. I have to assume he's talking about Kautsky. Yeah, oh yeah. I have zero reason to believe that. I have no evidence to back it up, but he's being vaguely mean to a guy, and that means it's Kautsky. Uh, I actually uh, actually think it might be Plakhanov. It might be Plakhanov! I'm assuming it's Kowski. Yeah, it's probably Kowski. It makes no difference. It was a person that was wrong. But the holding system not only serves to increase the power of the monopolist enormously, it also enables them to resort with impunity to all sorts of shady tricks to cheat the public. For the directors of the parent company are not legally responsible for the subsidiary companies. Important. Which are supposed to be independent, quote unquote, and through the medium of which they can do anything. Here is an example taken from the German Review and a new podcast favorite, Die Bank, for May 1914. The Spring Steel Corporation of Kassel was regarded by some years ago as being one of the most profitable enterprises in Germany. Through bad management, its dividends fell within the space of a few years from 15% to nil. It appears that the board, without consulting the shareholders, had loaned 6 million marks to one of its subsidiary companies, Hassia Limited which had a nominal capital of only some hundreds of thousands of marks. This commitment, amounting to nearly triple the capital of the parent company, was never mentioned in its balance sheets. The emission was quite legal and could be kept up for two whole years because it did not violate any provisions of company law. The chairman of the supervisory board, who was as the responsible head, signaled the false bal- signed the false balance sheets, was and still is the president of Castle Chamber of Commerce. The shareholders only heard of the loan to Hassia Limited long afterwards, when it had long been proved to be a mistake. Mark uh, Lennon parentheses, the word the writer should have put in quotation, quotation marks. marks. And when spring steel shares had dropped nearly 100 points because those in the know got rid of them. This typical example of balance sheet jugglery, quite common in joint stock companies, explains why boards of directors are more willing to undertake risky transactions than individual enterprises. Modern methods of drawing up balance sheets not only make it possible to conceal doubtful undertakings from the average shareholder, but also allow the people most concerned to escape the consequences of unsuccessful speculation by selling their, selling their shares in time while the private dealer risks his own skin. Now, yeah, I mean... Golden Parachute. Enron! Golden Parachute. Enron, Tyco. I mean, do people... The, the financial crisis in the 2008 housing market. Yeah. I mean, this and these are the stuff... These are the things that were happened under Bush that led up to the 2008 recession. And, and that's why... I mean, the 2008 recession was so big. I don't know... I don't know. People might have forgotten Enron and Tyco and the other bailouts. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it got you know, I mean... It, 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 the dollop episode on Enron, this is the necessary plug of the, like the third time I'm going to plug Dave this episode, but the dollop episode on Enron is an amazingly good detail of, yes. of how 
fucked that whole system was. What What was the movie that they did making fun of it with uh, Jim Carrey and Oh uh, yeah, Jim Face from the Third Jurassic Park. Uh, that I think is in a president and some stupid show on TV now. Uh, not Lord, not so not Laura Dern. Uh, no, Leone. Tara Leone. I don't fucking know. This is not a bar. This is not a pop culture podcast. Anyway, Come on. anyway. Yeah, they did I a bad did, movie where it's like, you know. Yeah, they did a bad movie because it's such an obvious subject to make fun yeah, of. I, I mean, and I don't think people even remember it anymore. No, it's, it's, it was a, and if you don't remember it, here's a brief rundown. They made up ways to cook their books in order to uh, make up profits that didn't exist and then use those profits to expand into areas they had no business being in. And then when all of it went tits up, they had an accounting firm cover for them so that they did not have to uh, report these books illegally, uh, shredded all the evidence, and all the people who knew what was going to happen sold all their shares mysteriously right beforehand. And got the fuck out of Dodge, yep. Now, one of those motherfuckers died of a heart attack in prison, so there was some level of justice there. Um, (laughs) Very small. One of them is back out on the streets and running free, the uh, the actual architect of the whole thing, um, who was called a wunderkind at the time. Anytime someone is described as a wunderkind in the finance industry, run! Yes. You run. business at all. You don't reinvent the wheel on this shit. You just commit varying forms of fraud. Yeah. But this is, that's just, so people, again, you, you talk about the Bush scandals that led up to uh, the, the 2008 financial crisis. This is not new. This is, this is Lenin's, this is, yeah. an exa- this is literally an exact carbon copy of those situations happening in 1914. hundred years before that. But also that's a very explicit version of it too. There's also this kind of implication uh, that big companies, it's another way to centralize. Big companies can take these quote-unquote risks because if the small companies fail, they lose a little bit of money, but they're not really responsible. The small oh. companies go belly under, the big companies write it off. If they boom, they're part of the big company. That's more and more money. And we're going to get to that in much more detail here in a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, the simplest and therefore most common procedure for making balance sheets indecipherable is to divide a business into several parts by setting up subsidiary companies or by annexing such. The advantages of this system for various objects, legal and illegal, are so evident that it is quite unusual to find an important company in which it is not in use. And this is all within one of those bourgeoisie economist this quotes. This is all bourgeois economy quotes. This is all within Dybank. This is the Wall Street Journal. Yes. Uh, as an example of an important monopolist widely employing this system, the now author quotes... Now by the way. Huh? But now we're back to Lenin. We're back to Lenin. As an example of an important monopolist company widely employing this system, the author quotes the famous Algemein Elkestritz Gestelhoft. Gestelhoft. Yeah. Better known as, and we need a drop for this because it's becoming so fucking prevalent, known as the AEG. Hey, here's another company, guys. That is still the fuck happening. To which we shall refer later on. In 1912, it was calculated that this country. Uh, in 1912, it was calculated that this company held shares from 175 to 200 other companies, controlling them. Of course, they wouldn't own share. They didn't own shares for benevolence. They owned them to control them. Mm-hmm. Thus, having control of a total capital of one trillion five hundred billion marks. That's in 1912. Mm-hmm. In 1912, they were so one company, AEG, controlled up to 200 other individual companies, and through financial manipulation of those companies, had control of more money than anyone can conceivably put their head around. Yeah, tell me that they're going to have to play by any rules. 
tell me there is consequence for them in any form that they cannot buy their way out of. It There's doesn't exist. No such and if you think they haven't gotten better about this since, you're kidding yourself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All rules of control, the publication of balance sheets, the drawing up of balance sheets according to a definite form, the public auditing of accounts, the things of which well-intentioned professors and officials, that is those imbued with the good intentions of defending and embellishing capitalism, uh, capitalism discourse to the public, are of no avail. For private property is sacred, and no one can be prohibited from buying, selling, exchanging, or mortgaging shares, etc. This is back to that private property is sacred. You can't regulate it! Because then you'd be taking away their inalienable right to own things. Mm-hmm. It's not their fault they're successful. You can't punish them for that. They they should be allowed to just do whatever the f- they want. Mm-hmm. So I'll get into, um, I, I don't, again, get a lot of usefulness out of scaling good or bad. But if we scale good or bad, you know, the, li- the UN is at least not like NATO bad or, you know, that kind of, but it's not super, we're not, not. I mean, on the grand scale of, like, is it Henry Kissinger or is it Lenin? I mean, I guess it's not. It's It, it airs closer to Lenin than it does Kissinger? Yeah, I mean, it's not not super great. Though. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know where this analysis is um, going. And, and of course, we're, we're unmitigated. We're big fans of libraries. Yes. I was in the library the other day, as, as I tend to, to I want to do as with my children. Want. Yeah. Uh, and my, my children and I were in the library, and there was a big poster about human rights. Oh! Good. Those always end well. Uh, from the UN, and many of those, like human rights, you're guaranteed. Uh, are it says like health, religion. You know, I mean, good, good rights. Whoa, right? whoa, whoa. we're guaranteed health. Uh, according to the UN. Yeah, fuck. <laughs> okay, I was about to say they, uh, they put Wait, this yeah, up again. at a library in Franklin County. Did no yeah, one oh, tell yeah. them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, these were down the list. Uh, the number one human right. Private property. God, go fuck yourself. <laughs> Get fucked. Get fucked over a thousand burning coals, you goddamn assholes. God yeah. damn it. Yeah, yeah. We skip for the first time a chunk. I promise I'm not just reading you this chapter verbatim. There's a lot of those uh, fun, let's use examples of Russian banks that are absolutely not relevant, so we're going to skip them all. Uh, finance capital concentrated in a few hands and exercising a virtual monopoly exacts enormous and ever-increasing profits from the floating of companies, issues of stock, state loans, etc. Tightens the grip of the financial oligarchies and levies tribute upon the whole of society for the benefit of the monopolists. Here is an example taken from a multitude of others of the methods employed by American trusts, quoted by Hilferding in 1887. Haymeyer founded the Sugar Trust by amalgamating 15 small firms whose total capital amounted to nearly $6,500,000. Suitably watered, as the Americans say, the capital of the trust was increased to $50 million. This overcapitalization anticipated the profits of the monopoly in the same way as the United States Steel Corporation anticipated its profits by buying up as many iron fields as possible. In fact, the Sugar Trust managed to impose monopoly prices on the market, which secured such profits that it could pay 10% dividend on capital watered sevenfold, or about 70% on the actual capital invested in the, at the time of the creation in the trust. In 1909, the capital of the Sugar Trust was increased to $90 million. In 22 years, it had increased its capital more than tenfold. What they are saying there is they, the, 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 this trust that was created knew 
because of the way the law is written and because of the way capitalism works, that it was going to be able to corner the market. It had a market plan that said, I'm going to corner the market. And as a result, once I corner it, this is how much money I'm going to make. And then made its capitalization based on that. It got its its capital investment based on these profits that it said it would make once it had become a monopoly. Becoming a monopoly was baked into the plan. Hey, guys, this is your friendly neighborhood time where we check in and remind you that Uber is a fucking thing. <laughs> um, and that the concept of losing money wouldn't make any sense unless you had your aim on becoming a monopoly and then that monopoly being worth so much money that it's worth losing a historic amount of money. Think about that. The amount of money, because Uber is a company that exists, mm -hmm. which means there are people, there are capitalists that have invested in it. Now, one of them's Ashton Kutcher, so I'm not going to say that they all know what the fuck they're doing. Some of them may be fucking morons. <laughs> but, I didn't even know. ostensibly, these people are in it to make a profit. They're sure as fuck not in it for altruistic reasons, because if they were, Uber wouldn't be the goddamn cesspool of fuck that it is. So they're in it to make a profit. The company is losing historic amounts of money year over year. Uh, unprecedented amounts of money for a company to lose and still stay in business. So what should that tell you? That should tell you the same thing that the sugar trust thing tells you. That they looked at what would a monopoly on the transportation industry look like? How much money could you make if you monopolized the transportation industry and broke the taxi unions and broke all of that out and were able to, mon to monetize that in some way? It's apparently enough that this company still exists despite losing them that much money because the upshot of it for them is so high that they're willing to keep sinking money into it to get it to happen. That is terrifying. Oh, and think of the power you have. I mean, this is something that like Walmart's been accused of with, you know, running small businesses out of towns through, you know, brick and mortar retail. Think of the amount of, of power you have if you're able to and willing to do that because the other company, by definition, can't keep up. No. How are they going to drop their prices? They can't no. keep up. First thing they're going to do is take it out on their workers, which, I mean, how Which they're doing. Do which anyway? absolutely. Yeah. Uber and Lyft. Uber, when Uber, if this is something people forget, when Uber first came out, um, you were able to be, you could make $100,000 a year being an Uber driver. It was a selling point, and it was real. You could. When Uber first came out, the way they were paying their people compared to their prices and all of that was so was so uh, uh, unbalanced that you absolutely could make $100,000 a year being an Uber driver. And then once they had everyone hooked in that, and again, they had to lose an insane amount of money to do that, then they started slowly but surely ratcheting up prices on consumers and then cutting all of the pay to their employees and making their working conditions hellacious once they had them quit their job because they were making $100,000 a year as an Uber driver and, and get get a car that they couldn't afford to become an Uber black driver and all of this kind of stuff, then they were able to turn it and, and completely drive everything into the ground in an attempt to become profitable, an attempt they are still failing at. And yet they just had an IPO blow out the wazoo. Mm -hmm. it, it makes no fucking sense unless you understand how finance capital works and what the end goal of these people is. Mm -hmm. Well, and you also got to think too, there's, I mean, look at shit like Bain Capital too. Can we not? <laughs> I'd prefer not look at Mitt Romney's weird Mormon face right now. Okay. Just okay. for 
my own mental health. Okay, well, we'll slow down on Nathan that. Nathan will take his headphones off while David tells you all about Bain Capital <laughs> for a second. We don't need but Bain Capital, uh, a big thing it does is it'll basically buy a company and then run it into the ground. Because it's it's valuable to slow down some of the competition and some of the areas that they have invested. And then they can just sell off the resources for more than the company's worth. And sometimes these are not failing companies. Sometimes they're profitable companies that Bain Capital fails. Toys R Us is a recent I was just about example. to say, I think, Toys, I, I think I seem to remember Toys R Us was, was in that, was in that yeah. vein. Yep. <sighs> All right. In France... The Role of the Financial Oligarchy Against the Financial Oligarchy in France, the title of the well-known book by Lisey in the fifth edition of which was published in 1908, assumed a form that was only slightly different. Four of the most powerful banks enjoy not a relative, but an absolute monopoly in the issue of bonds. In reality, this is a trust of the big banks, and their monopoly ensures the monopolist profit from bond issues. A country borrowing from France rarely gets more than 90% of the total loan. The remaining 10% goes to the banks of the other middlemen. The profit made by the banks out of the Russo-Chinese loans of 400 million francs amounted to 8%. Out of the Russian loan of 1904, 800 million francs, the profit amounted to 10%. And out of the Moroccan 1904 loan of 62.5 million francs, 18.75% went to the banks. Capitalism, which began its development with petty usury capital, ends its development with gigantic usury capital. I that want is you a guys. Oh, yeah, good was, fucking line, Lenin. I was gonna say, I want you guys to frame that that sentence. Somebody, for the love of God, out there, cross stitch that into a thing and put it above my bedroom. Capitalism, which began its development with petty usury capital, ends its development with gigantic usury capital. That is the most definitive sentence oh. I've read in any theory anywhere. It's so goddamn good. The French, says Lisey, are the usurers of Europe. All the conditions of economic life are being profoundly modified by this transformation of capital. With a stationary population and stagnant industry, commerce and shipping, the country can go rich by usury. 50 persons representing a capital of 8 million francs can control 2 billion francs deposited in four banks. The holding system, with which we are already familiar, leads to the same result. One of the biggest banks, the Societe Generale, for instance, issues 64,000 bonds for one of its subsidiary companies, the Egyptian sugar refineries. The bonds are issued at 150%, the bank gaining 50 centines on the franc, so 50 cents on the dollar. The dividends of the new company are then found to be fictitious. The public lost, because again, bonds are public money. The public lost 90 to 100 million francs. One of the directors of the Societe Generale is a member of the board of directors of the Egyptian sugar refineries. Hence, it is not surprising that the author is driven to the conclusion that the French Republic is a financial monarchy. It is complete domination of the financial oligarchy. The latter controls the press and the government. This, again, was happening in 1904, 1914? Uh, yeah, this was 1914. I can't remember the reference. He was citing 1904. Yeah, he was citing a 1904 reference. Yeah. Um, they get better. They mm. keep getting better. So every example that, that Lenin is citing, they've only gotten more... And we bring them up when we can, but the scarier part is probably the ones that we don't know about and the ones mm -hmm. that we're not uh, widely privy to because this is happening every single day. 
Honestly, we've not talked enough in this book, and we'll get to it, about World Bank and IMF. Oh, we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll I think get to it. When we get to recreating the conditions, yeah, no, yeah, we're going to get capital, there. Yeah, we'll get to that. The extraordinarily high profit obtained from the issue of bonds, which is one of the f- principal functions of financial capital, plays a large part in the development and stabilization of the financial oligarchy. There is not in the whole country a single business that brings its pro- in profits even approximately equal to those obtained from the issue of foreign loans, says the German magazine Die Bank. No banking operation brings in profits comparable with those obtained from the flotation of loans. According to the German Economist, which is a, a magazine, again, it's the German Reuters instead of the German Wall Street Journal this time, the average or annual... German The Economist. Well, yeah, but that seemed too on the nose. <laughs> The, and the germ and in, in their defense, the German economist is probably less fascist than the actual economist. That so, is true. That is true. Let's, let's which is amazing, credit. considering that country's history. <laughs> the average annual profits made on the issue of industrial securities were as follows. And I'm gonna, I, I am Don't. the person who does not want to read these, but I'm gonna read these once. God damn it. 1895, 38.6 percent. 96, 36.1 percent. This is going year by year. Then goes to 66.7. 67.7, 66.9, they took a dip, 55.2. In the 10 years from 1891 to 1900, more than a billion marks were quote unquote earned on the issue of industrial securities. Again, think about, let, let's think way back. Let's get in the way back machine. Labor, theory of value. What creates value in things? What What is happening? It's the labor that you're putting into a thing. It's how you're changing it. Capitalists found a way to subvert that, guys. <laughs> surprise, surprise! Capitalism has found a way to, uh, to to fuck with that system and get your M to M prime without any actual labor <laughs> by just simply moving money. It is it is insanity, pure insanity, pure and simple. Well, during periods of industrial boom, the profits of finance capital are disproportionately large. During periods of depression, small and unsound businesses go out of existence, and the big banks take holdings in their shares, which are bought up for next to nothing, or in profitable schemes for their reconstruction and reorganization. Guys, how many times have you heard that fucking phrase of reorganizing and stuff like that? Uh, Sears recently, Toys R Us, all of these all of these companies that are going out of business, but then they're, they're restructuring to be different. Somebody's buying up everything they have, their intellectual property, their patents, their, their, their namesake, all of those things. And they're buying them up for nothing. They're just, they're, they're there and they're like, oh, mine now. And then they get rolled into that big parent company. That big parent company is too big to fail, so it will never suffer enough consequences to be in danger. And so it just slowly but surely over time... Cl- hey, hey, guys, I'm going to make a reference that absolutely no one will get. It's the Katamari Damacy of fucking capital. What? This is insanity. It is just a giant ball rolling into itself and never ever slowing down. Businesses that are actually taking risk Because again, someone out there is going to be saying, and rightfully so, you're there. But I'm out there. I'm staking my claim in my small business. I'm taking an actual risk. I'm I'm putting my 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 401k on the line to try and start my new business. You're right. You are taking a risk. You're taking a risk. But what if you fail? You fail. You're gone. You're out. You're out of the game. You got nothing. There is no golden parachute for you. But a large, giant, multinational corporation could absolutely come in when you declare bankruptcy. And if you've made anything of value, 
They will sweep in, buy it for pennies on the dollar, less than you ever paid for it, and now it's theirs. This happens during busts. Constantly. 2008 was a bust. People lost their livelihoods. People lost their, their, their homes. People lost everything that gave them any sense of stability in the world. Unless you were part of the financial oligarchy. And then you just got a, it, it was a fucking estate sale for fucking billionaires. It was, hey, look at all this free stuff we can buy up for nothing now. This is great. So convenient that all these people had to uh, lose their livelihoods for us to be able to get all this new, fun, shiny stuff that we didn't have before. Um, and then everybody else gets to thrown into shittier jobs and we get told how unemployment solved. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And again, back to the, uh, uh, the uh, example we use during Capital, 2000, during the same time, early 2000s, uh, United Airlines. Went out mm-hmm. of business. Went into restructuring, reorganization. They, and and what was what was that reorganization? What was part of that? Well, part of that reorganization was we can't afford to pay the uh, the health care and pension benefits that we promised the people that had been working for us for all these years. And the court said, "Uh huh, sure, absolutely. The federal government will pay thirty percent of what those were worth because that's what they were insured up to. So those people will get thirty percent of their livelihoods, and you, United." can start over again, get a uh, get-out-of-jail-free card, go back to doing exactly what you were doing, and continue being billionaires with mm-hmm. no consequence. It, 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 it is terrifying. If this does not infuriate you, I, I, don't, I don't know what would infuriate you. I don't know what... I don't know anyone who could be listening to this who could be like, no, yeah, that's okay. That's a cool system. Yeah. Sounds great. Sounds really I, fucking great. I, I don't give a shit if the if the adage about Americans being temporarily inconvenienced millionaires is true. We're not talking about millionaires. We're talking about a level of, of financial dominance that you or no one you know will ever be a part of. Why are we letting these people continue to do this? <sighs> Incidentally, adds Hilferding, these reorganizations and restructures have a twofold significance for the banks. First, as profitable transactions, and secondly, as opportunities for securing control of the companies in difficulty. Here, in an instance, the Union Mining Company of Dortmund, founded in 1872 with a capital of 40 billion marks, saw the market price for shares rise to 170 after it paid a 12% dividend in its first year. Finance capital skimmed the cream and earned a trifle, something like uh, 28 million marks. The principal sponsor of this company was that very big German Discanto Gestalt, which so successfully attained a capital of 300 billion marks. We talked about them in chapter one. That's the Discanto Gestalt that we were talking when we were talking about all the banks and how they consolidated to get mm-hmm. Uber capital. Um, they, this is them. They uh, they they propped up this union mining company. They paid out a good dividend, so their share prices went up. Uh, Discanto Gestalt made 28 million off of that particular transaction. Um, But then later, the dividends of the union dropped to nothing. The shareholders had to consent to a writing down of capital. That is to losing some of their capital so that they didn't lose all of it. By a series of reconstructions, more than 73 million marks were written off the books of the union in the course of the 30 years. At the present time, the original shareholders of this company possess only 5% of the nominal value of their shares. So let's say you're an individual person. You're a mom and pop. You're a family. And you invested in this mining company because it seemed like a good investment and your financial advisor told you you should invest in them. You, that person, 
have 5% of whatever you invested left. You got fucked. But the banks made profit at every single point of that reconstruction. They took no losses. They made profit every single time in and out. Speculation in land situated in the suburbs of rapidly growing towns is a particularly profitable operation for finance capital. The monopoly of the banks merger the monopoly of the banks merges here with the monopoly of ground rent and with the monopoly of the means of communication. Oh God, guys! It's the Holy Trinity. They've arrived. It's it's the it's the three horsemen of the fucking apocalypse. Um, it's landlords, it's banks, and it's the communications companies, guys. We're 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 doomed. It's over. Call yeah. it a day. We have all the landlords. We have City and Wells Fargo just getting chubby the fuck chubby, and then we have AT and T and Verizon spinning in fucking circles around them with the post office and some kind of private company just chilling and rocking it. I I can't. I can't imagine a more terrifying. Somebody sent me a D and D campaign set in the world of like 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 personify finance capital as D and D bosses and let me at least pretend I can beat them at some point because this is fucking infuriating. Since the increase in the value of land and the possibility of selling it in profitable allotments is mainly dependent on good means of communication with the center of town. Now, again, this has adapted as communication yes. has got. This has only evolved as communication got better. As we got the internet, as we got instant communication, these trades can be happening instantly. You're not you're not as reliant yeah, on the telecom. Selling land one. now, I mean, gentrification is a whole nother animal. We'll have to get into. It is, and we will. These means of communication are in the hands of large companies connected by means of the holding system. So again, the people that control the communication that allows you to make these profits are subsidiaries of AEG, of, of Siemens, of any of these people. And the distribution of positions of the on the directorates with the interested banks. As a result, we get with the German writer L. Eschwange, a contributor to Die Bank, who has made a special study of real estate business and mortgages calls the formation of a bog. Frantic speculation in land in the suburbs of large towns, collapse of building enterprises like that of the Berlin firm of Quan Bolswan and Nauer, there's my fuck up of the day, which <laughs> grabbed 100 million marks with the help of the sound and solid Deutsche Bank, the latter acting, of course, discreetly behind the scenes through the holding system and getting out of it by only losing 12 million marks. Again, the, the the amount of losses that these businesses can take and not even feel yeah it it when you say that everyone's playing on an even it, it's it's again back to cap this is this is so much back to capital of it's almost like they all build on each other guys um the only thing the most unequal thing you can do is treat unequals as equal and that's what capitalism tries to convince you you're doing that's what capitalist apologists try and convince you is happening that you're on the same playing field as aeg as uh, ge as as amazon that you're somehow playing the same game that they are that they all started at the same place and well, therefore yeah, I mean, you can start there and get there too let's think about this right let's let's even go you know deutsche bank let's say and not just one person let's put um you know, what's the, the board of directors probably got 12 people on it? Let's say. Okay, let's say 12 people. Okay. So Deutsche Bank loses $12 million. Now you and 11 other friends that you know, personal people, lose $12 million. Are they affected the same way? No. 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 Not in a million years. The scale of this is insanity. And again... That's assuming that they were all playing on the same playing field, and mm. they're not. We've established that the people on the inside of this are moving these money through subsidiaries 
knowing that they can hide it, legally hide it, and this has never changed, and then they all get out. We, we hear about Martha Stewart going to jail for insider trading and think that somehow we have a strong system of securities and exchange, you know, that, that we're really on top of this shit. No. No, we're not. This is absolutely happening every single day, and nothing happens. <clears throat> The ruin of small masters and of workers who got nothing from these fraudulent buildings, underhand agreements with the honest Berlin police and Berlin administration for the purpose of getting control of the issue of the building sites, tenders, building licenses, etc. So the banks invest in these wild speculative building projects, knowing that if they fail, fine, I'll eat 12 billion, I'll eat 12 million dollars. But now I'm going to own all the rights to those buildings so that whenever I want to do anything with them, I can't. So now I'm the landlord. So if that building project had worked out, I'd have made a small profit. Let's say I made $100 million. But now that it's failed and I own it, I have all of its profit in perpetuity because I get to charge you rent on it. We're back to Monopoly, guys. They, You had the thing. You went bankrupt. They bought your property off of you for nothing. And then they put hotels on it. Yeah, I mean, and that, that's important to point out, too. You know, if it succeeds, they make profit. That's what they want. Great. Cool. If it fails, they're even better off. They yes. become the owners. Yes. And again, they have to take loss to do that. But that's baked into their equation. When they're too mm-hmm. big to fail, there is no loss big enough. There isn't. There's no... Po- Wells Fargo just got fined a billion U.S. dollars. For committing financial fraud. And there's more coming. Fraud Fraud on a scale that should be incomprehensible. Fraud on a scale that we should not even think of the word mafia. That should be like like libertarian to anarchist. Mafia should be a softer term for Wells Fargo. And yet, they made a commercial saying, we're super sorry, guys. And we're going to be the leaders in fixing it. They're always the leaders they're in gonna, fixing it. They're going to get to the heart of that matter. And what it was super fun irony. Uh, this was in the middle of the the, the fraudulent account scandal. Um, and, and everyone was like, oh, my God, holy shit. And then they made that commercial, the, we're sorry. And the next day, their, their fun auto loan uh, insurance fraud scandal came out. And it's just like. Uh, um, you gonna make another one? Get get Joe back in the in the green screen room to make another I apologize video holding a baby seal or something because I don't you can't make enough of these. It it's mind boggle. And again, there will be their CEO retired. Yeah, he it's kept fine. all his it's dividends good. and all that kind of stuff. The the person at the head of their uh, mortgage department that that absolutely spearheaded their subprime uh, uh, scandal, she she retired. She kept all of her all of her pensions, all her profits, all her investments, everything everything got to stay. No one is punished for this. No one. And do not get me wrong, they got people killed. They got they pushed people out of homes. They pushed people to either suicide or pushed people into conditions that caused them to die. There is no other way around it. There is no. There is no other way of looking at it, and they did it intentionally. Don't. This was not. This is. This is not like the fun American. We blundered into a war accidentally. Whoops a daisy, Mister Magoo. They set out with a plan to make profit in an area they knew would do this, and no one got punished for it. At the beginning of 1914, 
there was talk in Berlin of the proposed formation of a traffic trust to combine three Berlin traffic undertakings, i.e. to establish common interest between the Metropolitan Electric Railway, the Tramway Company, and the Omnibus Company. We know, wrote Dybank, that this plan has been contemplated since it became known that the majority of the shares in the bus company has been acquired by the two other traffic companies. We may believe those who are pursuing the same when they say that by uniting the transport services, they will unify traffic and thus secure economies, part of which will in time benefit the public. But the question is complicated by the fact that behind the traffic trust that is being formed are the banks, which if they desire can subordinate the means of communication, which they have monopolized, to the interests of their real estate businesses. To be convinced of the reasonableness of such a conjecture, we need only recall that at the very formation of the elevated railway company, the traffic interest became interlocked with real estate interests of the banks which financed it. And this interlocking even created the prerequisites for the formation of the traffic enterprise. Its eastern line, in fact, was run through land, which when it became certain the line was to be laid, this bank sold to the real estate firm at an enormous profit for itself and for several partners in the transaction. Uh, modern example time. AT&T. Yep. Vertical integration. Yep. Buying Time Warner, DirecTV, all of that kind of fun stuff. Mm-hmm. When when the, the CEO of AT&T, Randall Stevenson, went in front of everyone and, and had to pitch why it was okay for AT&T to not only acquire DirecTV, um, a, a platform for producing television, but also acquire Time Warner Media, which produced content that would be displayed on there, there were questions that came up to the extent of, what the fuck would stop you from telling anyone who isn't subscribed to your particular service that they don't get HBO? What, at that point, since you control the company that makes the content, what would stop you from doing that? And he gave an answer very similar to what this company said. Well, that wouldn't be in the consumer's interest, and we're, we're in the consumer's interest because they are what make our profit, and so we wouldn't withhold that. That, would be, that wouldn't be in our self-interest to withhold that kind of content. Um, we're, we're interested in distributing it as far and wide as possible. We wouldn't want to do that. Two weeks ago, it was announced that uh, AT&T would not be making Warner Media content available on certain uh, competitive platforms once they had established their unified streaming platform that they're about to develop. Nothing happens. Mm-hmm. It, it, this is the television version of net neutrality. It, it it's it's it, it's do not believe a word that is said when mergers are happening. When mergers are happening, I mean, don't believe any word. That's don't believe any word that comes out of their mouth at any point. Of these, but when we're going through this and you're attempting to do this, one know for a fact AT and T is has explicitly, allegedly, quote unquote. Sources say, allegedly, I've heard, maybe, through the grapevine. <laughs> when they merged with DirecTV, they laid off about a third of their total staff. Because we've acquired a new company that has staff, and there's redundancies in those staff, so we're going to lay off a third of their staff. You're going to call I it I mean, some... obviously, you know, they acquired DirecTV, so it must not be profitable, and they must have to fix it. That's always the logic in these things. So a third of not only, not DirecTV staff, a third of... AT&T company's staff was laid off. Mm-hmm. That was the layoff that I was a part of, was in as consequence of the DirecTV merger. As soon as the a Warner merger was finally approved, uh, there came announcements again that there was going to be another round of, of layoffs. And they'll call them surplusing. They'll call them all sorts of things they want to call them. They, they fired a bunch of people. Um, 
because they had acquired a whole new group of people. And hey, these people are on lower salaries and these we could cut a third of our staff and still be able to function effectively. You know why they picked a third? Because there were three companies that came together. They know what they can get away with. They know what they can do. It is never in the interest of the consumer. I worked. You worked. We worked mm-hmm. and sold AT&T's products and services. Oh, <laughs> the piles of bullshit. Yes. Yes. Uh, we were told that part of this consolidation would allow them to be more competitive and reduce prices and do all of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I can tell you reduction. from, because I, I, I still pay attention to it because yeah. I'm bitter. Um, from the time I started at AT&T, when they did not own DirecTV, through to now, when they own Time Warner and have gotten all these assets that they said would allow them to be more competitive and, and reduce prices, nothing has changed. Every one of the base prices is the same. Every one of the packages is the same. They have not in one iota moved towards a more consumer-friendly platform. The mm-hmm. only time in the last 10 years that I've been associated or around or paying attention to that company that they have ever made a move to lower prices was when T-Mobile, in a move again, because I, I believe T-Mobile is owned by... Uh, Deutsche Telekom. Yeah, who, again, we're back to the Germans. Yeah. When they decided that they were going to undercut everybody in an attempt to uh, f- uh to, to to fuck up the market a little bit and try, oh yeah, I consolidate monopoly, yeah. Uh huh. All of a sudden, everyone else had to make had to compete in order to to save mm-hmm. their client base. They had to concede to what T-Mobile was willing to drop to, and that artificially lowered prices. Now that price has since gone right back up. Oh yeah, infinitely, and that went right back up as soon as they stopped subsidizing phones. And stop doing all of this other stuff. Um, but again, every bit of this pro-consumer, it'll it'll make everything better. It's all good. It's bullshit from the start. That was one of the fun things, too, when I was working there. So the price drop Nathan's talking about, uh, weird thing in American cell phone business, totally unique. And it made people not understand the pricing, so there was some frustration. It wasn't very fun. For us to have to tell people that's their job, but it was a selling point. It was this five hundred dollar phone? You sign a contract, get it for two hundred bucks free, whatever it is to, to get you in, right? And the downside is you have a contract, and the price to break that contract is about the the price that you got off on the phone. Magically, right? Um, so when they first introduced this, it was now you have freedom. Now you're not paying because then you're paying that every month. So if you don't get a new phone every two years, you're you're losing money. Yep. So now you have the freedom. You get a discount on your plan, and you can sign a contract, get the discount of the phone instead, and it goes back up, but then it drops back off when you're off contract. And then if you buy the phone's full price, you can spread them out in payments, but then you're not necessarily getting this discount. And you got this whole scheme to try to like, oh, look, we're not ripping you off on the phone anymore. That's gone. Gone. But they're still paying full price on the phone now. Yeah. It's out the window. They managed to re... If you paid attention over that time, they restructured. They, they completely cut there, there used there were discount programs for your employer that used to offset that. Those all got cut to basically nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then there was the big sticking point of unlimited data for a long time. They had to bring that back temporary. They had to bring that back once they now they always had the network to be able to support unlimited data. Yeah, there was like no can't. this they, concept they that there there was oh there's only so much bandwidth and we couldn't give it to every bullshit. Yeah, bullshit lies and slander. Just it's it's nonsense. Straight up shit. I know that for a fact because I've I I mean I'm using by myself 350 gigabytes the of data. The things that they told you used a lot of data too like gaming and stuff. That was oh, not no, no. 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 It was all streaming media, which 
they now own a streaming media company. So once they owned a streaming media company, suddenly data became unlimited. We have as much as we want now. And they telegraphed that they have the bandwidth because you could use unlimited data as long as you're using it on their services. And on anything else you stream, you only get five gigs. But that's that's freedom. Yeah. That's freedom, baby. (sighs) Good. A monopoly. Once it is formed and controls thousands of millions, inevitably penetrates into every sphere of public life, regardless of the form of government and all other details. In the economic literature of Germany, one usually comes across the servile praise of the integrity of the Prussian bureaucracy and allusions to the French Panama scandal and to the political corruption in America. But the fact is that even the bourgeois literature devoted to German banking matters constantly has to go beyond the field of purely banking operations and to speak, for instance, of the attraction of the banks in reference to the increasing frequency with which public officials take employment with the banks. And we're back to this point that I hinted at earlier. How about the integrity of the state official who in his inmost heart is aspiring to a soft job on Wall Street, which is just just say on Wall Street. It's their version of Wall Street. In 1909, the publisher of Die Bank, Alfred Landsberg, wrote an article entitled The Economic Significance of Byzantinism, in which the incidentally referred to Wilhelm II's tour of Palestine and to the immediate result of this journey, the construction of the Baghdad Railway, that fatal great product of German enterprise, which is more responsible for the encirclement than all other political blunders put together. Again, political blunders, acting like politicians don't know what the fuck they're doing and they just Absolutely. stumble into things. By encirclement is meant the policy of Edward VII of isolating Germany by surrounding her with imperialist anti-German alliance. So again, Germany got all the other people on the continent decided to surround Germany and and say no, and they think that this is because they invested in the Baghdad Railroad and that scared people. It's bullshit. It's nonsense. But again, what the fuck does this have to do with banking? Nothing. But banking permeates everything. We already wrote an article entitled Plutocracy and Bureaucracy in which he exposes the case of a German official named Volker, who was a zealous member of the cartel committee and who sometime later obtained a lucrative post in the biggest cartel, the Steel Syndicate. Similar cases, by no means casual, forced this bourgeois author to admit that the economic liberty guaranteed by the German constitution is at present, in many departments of economic life, only a meaningless phrase. And under the rule of the plutocrats, the widest political liberty cannot save us from being converted into a nation of unfree people. Listen to that again. Yep. The widest political liberty cannot save us from being converted into a nation of unfree people. Stop screaming that we have all this freedom and that makes us better. No, it doesn't. Not if there is not real and serious checks on on this kind of behavior and that will never exist under capitalism. And that was an admission from a bourgeoisie author from Germany in the early 20th century. It just gets more and more true in the United States. And then we go to Ger- and we go to Russia for another example of, of another mm-hmm. person that did exactly that. Again, we could ad nauseum find uh, find people yeah. that have have jumped from banking that we we already did that that analogy in the last uh, the last episode, so I'm not going to belabor it here. Um and then we get into a, a whole thing on the issuing of, of bonds again and economic securities, which I, I don't think is all of that interesting. But then we get down to something that's rather interesting. In the 1870s, the total amount of issues for the whole world was very high for bonds. Uh, this was owing particularly to loans that were floated in connection with the Franco-Prussian War. War is profitable. Uh, there's a reason that they keep doing it. Uh, and the company promoting the boom, which set in Germany after the war. 
In general, the increase is not very rapid for the three de last three decades of the 19th century, and only in the first 10 years of the 20th century is there an enormous increase observed of almost 100%. Thus, the beginning of the 20th century marks the turning point, not only in regard to the growth of monopolies, of which we have already spoken, but also in regards to the development of finance capital. Neymark estimates the total amount of issued securities current in the world in 1910 at about 815 billion francs. Deducting from the amounts which might have been duplicated, we reduced this to 600 billion francs. That is broken down as such. So this is financial assets that are in play by country in 1910. Great Britain, 142. United States, 132. France, 110. So you've got 479 between those three countries. Germany, 95, still pretty respectable. Russia, 31, Austria-Hungary, 24, Italy, 14, Holland, 12, Japan, 12, Belgium, 7, Spain, 7, Switzerland, 6.25, Denmark, 3.75, Sweden, Norway, Romania, 2.5, total 600. So again, three countries effectively, and this is basically taking every advanced economy in the world. Everything else isn't even worth mentioning, essentially, is what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And three of those countries have the exact same amount as everybody else yeah it'll be seen at once from these figures what a privileged position is held by the four richest capitalist countries each of whom control securities to the amounts ranging from approximately 100 to 150 billion francs two of these countries are the oldest capitalist countries and as we shall see possess the most colonies england and france <laughs> that's changed the other two are in the front rank as regards to the rapidity of development and the degree of extension of capitalist monopolies in industry the united states and germany we've always been kind of linked at the hip yeah. Us two. We're very yeah. friendly. Yeah. Uh, together, these four countries own 479 billion francs. That is nearly 80% of the world's finance capital. Thus, in one way or another, the whole world is more or less the debtor to and the vassal of these four international banker countries, the pillars of world finance. It is particularly important to examine the part which capital exports play in creating the international network of dependence and tiers of finance capital. Nice little hint. We're getting ready to go into the export of capital, guys. Yeah, that is this one is, last lead in transition state. Yeah, right this is uh, if you this is our fun obvious lead into IMF and you know this has this evolved from four countries being the lenders. Sure, there's more countries involved, but they found a way to centralize it, and that's when we're going to get into fun things like IMF and the World Bank and all of that fun things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Have a feeling we're going to talk about Mozambique, I believe, uh, next episode. We're going to talk about a lot of things next episode. We're going to talk about a lot of things next episode. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But that, then, has been uh, uh, this this particular chapter of imperialism. Yes. If you could not tell, um, this might be the angriest I've ever been during an episode of this podcast. Um, at least since the commune, this is the maddest I've been. So. Um, and he has more book ahead of him. I know, and that's the thing. Yeah, I haven't read anything more, so I'm. Uh, I have a feeling if this is, it's, I'm, I'm ha we're halfway through. I think there's six chapters in this book. Oh, I think there's like ten. Oh fuck! I can't take that many. Um, yeah, yeah. There's definitely more. There's six. Uh, there's six there. Yeah, there's there's eight or seven. Uh, oh shit! Yeah, there's nine. Oh god, there's ten. He's gonna keep. He's gonna keep being mean to me, isn't he? Yeah, there's ten. <laughs> he liked. He liked even numbers. All right. Oh yeah. god. See, state and revolution, this is, I'm glad we did this in this order, because Mar uh, Capital, um, one, was a, uh, a punishing, uh, mean thing that you made me do, um, and, uh, and I'm happy I did it, but it's kind of like, I, I'm sure I'd be happy if I ran a marathon, too, but I, I, I'm not thrilled about it, it was painful, um, 
Then State and Rev was like this fun, fun trip down what if and and the future and and and, and oh my god, we can build a better society. There's hope in the world. Damn it, let's go, guys. Let's get the revolution going. And now you're forcing me to go back down the hole and confront while miserably fucked we are by the goddamn ruling class, and it's making me very sad. I'm just sad. So um, hopefully the rest of you are not quite as sad as I am. Um, hopefully this is at least slightly uh, 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 showing, again, the, the, we, we read theorists because they're right. We don't read theorists because they're theorists. We don't have a picture of Lenin hanging above us uh, that we worship un- unequivocally. David is now looking at the picture of Stalin that we have hanging above us. That's that not Lenin. That's not Lenin. That's right. That is not, Lenin. not Lenin. We don't. We don't. Do, I. I. We got a picture of. We got a poster of Stalin. It's very. Ha- I'm very it happy. Ass. I'm very happy with it. It's very. Good. Um, it's very cool. Um, but we don't. We don't. We're not reading them because they're them. We're reading them because what they said was so right that if they got that much that right, we need to listen to the other things that they said. And and so far. I, I almost think we we did ourselves a disservice by doing Satan Rev before this. I'm glad we did because, God damn it, if you did made me do this right after Capital, <laughs> I'd have killed myself. Um, but the, the 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 conclusions that Lenin comes to in Satan Revolution are based off of this book, uh, are based off the things he observed, or, or the the and and the the need for the revolution is based off of the things he he talks about in this book, and they're true. The same way that cap that that Capital was true mm-hmm. was you can. You can claim that the that the solutions we're mapping out are are untested or or are idealistic or or whatever, but we're come the 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 theorists that came up with these ideas come from a foundation of very 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 accurately viewing the world around them in ways that nobody else seemed to want to do. Mm-hmm. So that is why we read these. That is why is it important to read these because. Say what you want about Lenin. This book is being more insightful about how how finance rules the world than literally anything being said in the 21st century right now. Absolutely. So... So in the any meantime, more birth- it's still it's still May nineteenth, so there have been no more new birthdays. There have been uh, no more new birthdays. There's also been no corrections that have been tweeted to me since we started this episode. Yes, yeah, so so, uh, so uh, nothing to collect there. So uh, yeah, no. So me and you are uh, done for today. We need to figure out uh, more ways to torture you emotionally going forward. Yeah, I'm gonna need some praxis on the backside of this. I'm gonna need some like soothing, cathartic praxis to like actually improve the world because this is this is making me very sad. Woe to the next cop that Nathan walks by. Oh, d- <laughs> cop! Woe to the next bank Nathan has to walk into. That's true. That's true. Jesus. Oh, all right, guys. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.